On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. The science of implicit bias is one of the most promising fields for animating the human change that makes social change possible. And the social psychologist Mazarin Banaji is one of its primary architects. She's helping us see how the mind is a difference-seeking machine. And in this way, it helps us order and navigate what could be the overwhelming complexity of reality. Yet this same gift creates blind spots and biases as we fill in what we don't know with the limits of what we do know. This is science that takes our grappling with difference out of the realm of guilt and into the realm of transformative good. I don't want people to not learn from guilt and not learn from shame. I think those are powerful motives. They have made us, in large part, the more civilized people we are. But I do believe that in our culture and in many cultures, we are at a point where our conscious minds are so ahead of our less conscious minds. We must recognize that and yet ask people the question, are you the good person you yourself want to be? And the answer to that is, no, you're not. And that's just a fact. And we need to deal with that if we want to be on the path of self-improvement. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Mazarin Banaji is a professor of social ethics in the psychology department at Harvard University. She's the co-author of Blind Spot: Hidden Biases of Good People, and she's the creator of the Implicit Association Test, which has been taken by over 17 million people. She was born in India and raised in the town of Secunderabad. I spoke with her in 2016. I start all my interviews by inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, however you would define mm. that now. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's uh, that will take us an hour because uh, I come from one of the world's minority religions, but that also happens to be of great interest to scholars of religion. Um, I was born and raised a Zoroastrian. Yes. Zoroastrianism is probably the world's oldest monotheistic religion. It right. predates Judaism by about 1,500 years, some scholars will argue. And it's a um, religion that actually dominated much of Central Asia for many centuries and um, seems like we're about 80,000 or so in the world. 50,000 live in Mumbai and what was Bombay, and the rest are scattered all over. And it's of great historical interest that we exist, uh, right. but it's also anthropologically odd that we are dying out so fast. We don't accept conversion. Hmm. For some odd reason, we don't have children. We tend to marry less than most others. I and all and my siblings, none of us have children. Interesting. Uh, yeah, but I am strangely kind of proud to be <laughs> of, of this community of people dying out. Um, well, you know, uh, I, I wonder yeah. if that flows into, it, it seems mm -hmm. related to the question I want to ask you also about 
if you can trace sort of the origins in your early life to these passions that you follow now, and of course that's you know that's a complicated thing to summarize, but I'd say the way you are working with our human approach to to the other, to difference, to bias, to diversity. Um, mm-hmm. were, were there roots of that that were, are formative in, in your life that maybe well, inclined I have, you? I have, um, I have no faith in people's ability to reflect back on their lives and yeah. to accurately report on what may be the case, but yeah. I do have theories. Uh, and one such theory is that I actually lived in a Zoroastrian enclave. Um, People who surrounded me as neighbors were all Zoroastrians. We lived in a compound. When we left the compound, we knew we were the other. Hmm. I've actually felt more comfortable in the United States because it is a country of immigrants where yeah. even though I was odder than the oddest, I still am one of many people who probably feel that way. And so there was a deep comfort arriving in the United States as I did in 1980 from a country that is, you know, uh, largely Hindu and has many minorities and many intergroup conflicts around the issue of religion. But my group was always reasonably protected. We were relatively safe. We knew we could not participate in some larger society as equals, but we also knew we were privileged in some way because we were wealthier, we were more educated, and therefore had certain protections. And it, it's interesting to me to think about the work you do now, the, the discoveries you've made and, and helped us make as a culture, but that when it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you start, when you wandered into psychology, we were kind of convincing ourselves that human beings were rational beings and, and, and the language of, of the unconscious had kind of fallen out of favor. Is that right? Mm. It's so completely right that I had this flashback to my meeting with my dissertation committee in 1983, and I remember wanting to study the topic of repression. (laughs) Right. (laughs) An old Freudian concept. Mm. I, of course, had long given up any belief in Freud's ideas as having been proven. I knew that the fact of an unconscious appealed to me. I read studies, experiments done where um, you can have people record words into a tape recorder and then you can have them hear their those words played back to them through headphones like I'm wearing now, except that there are also words, the same words said by others. And you're asked to identify the words that you're hearing that were said by you in your voice versus words that were said by others. And it turns out We're not very good at doing that. We can't tell our own voices apart from the voices of others. Really? We're almost at chance at being able to do that. However, the investigators also hooked people up to a machine that in those old days measured physiology in sort of the crudest possible way, skin conductance. You know, how much sweat do your fingers excrete when you hear your own voice versus the voice of others? And the data showed that you actually must be recognizing your own voice at some implicit or unconscious level because the skin conductance measure was much higher when you heard your own voice versus the voice of others, Mm. even though cognitively you couldn't tell the two apart. 
Like I was completely fascinated by this. So your body, your body knows Somewhere. something, recognizes something that Some your system mind in does you. not know. Yes, not your conscious mind. Right. And so this just, I was just bowled over by this. I thought, how can it be that in the same person, in the same mind, there are multiple minds in yeah. a sense? Some mm. part of me knows, some part of me doesn't know. The same thing. And I think I, it always stuck with me so that years later when I made the discovery that people make judgments about the fame of a name. How famous is this name? And if it turns out if you've heard a name uh, that you could randomly sort of pull out of a phone book, you know, Sebastian Weisdorf. If I hear the name or if I've seen it somewhere in some irrelevant context and then two days later I'm asked, is this a famous person? I'm more likely to say yes. So there's a kind of a lingering perceptual, what we might call fluency hmm. for that visual stimulus. And I just did that same study, except that I thought, I'll use both names of men and women, and discovered to my great astonishment uh, and my colleague Tony Greenwald's astonishment that women's names did not become famous overnight uh, mm. in, this, in mm. this study. So we thought, oh, so the underlying perceptual fluency can be exactly the same, but at the point of making a decision, is this famous? some other standard is being used. Okay. If female, not famous. If male, famous. And people were doing this without awareness. So I would quiz all 400 of them. <laughs> Did you use the gender of the name in making your choice? Absolutely not. Right. Well, right. how could this be? And I just thought this was more interesting than the memory bias. And so off I went doing some different things that now make up the last 30 years. Yeah, I want to ask you, 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 you use the language, um, I believe, very often of implicit. And I don't mm. know if that is um, a synonym or, 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 a, mm. or a refinement of the word unconscious. Like, what, what does that word um, yeah, connote for you? It's a very good question. And I have pushed the word implicit in part because the word unconscious in our culture has a certain meaning. First of all, it is psychoanalytic. But more than that, it has the implication that the unconscious is this incredibly motivated, smart process that is constantly trying to do things that are in my interest and shove away the deep, dark secrets of my childhood that I don't right, wish to right. remember. And the science has not produced good evidence for that. The science tells us that that the word unconscious really should be used to refer to ordinary things, you know, things that are irrelevant, nothing that's dynamic and necessary. I mean, someday maybe we'll get evidence for that. But right now, it's that I saw something in a store that had a certain feature, a pattern, and I see it again, and I like it more because it's familiar. So the word implicit came to be used by us almost in an effort to try to demystify mm -hmm. what the old unconscious might have meant. It's a failing project. <laughs> People love Is the it? word unconscious. Well, well, it Everywhere also I takes go, they say, you're the expert on unconscious bias. And, yeah, I say, yep, okay. But I think <laughs> yeah. it, and maybe because of the Freudian, you know, lingering associations, um, I think implicit takes also out the suspicion of like moral blame. Mm, um, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. That is a part of it. I don't want people to not learn from guilt and not learn from shame. I think those are powerful motives. Mm -hmm. They have made us, in large part, 
the more civilized people we are. But I do believe that in our culture and in many cultures, we are at a point where our conscious minds are so ahead of where our less conscious minds are. Our, our conscious minds deeply believe in egalitarianism, in selecting people based on things called merit and talent and not based on the color of people's skin or their height or whether they have hair on their head. Uh, and and yet we are doing that. And so I like what you just said, which is implicit just allows us to shed that that whole sort of moral encasing in which so much of our values about am I a discriminator or not comes yes. that I am especially interested in letting people let go of that that sort of sense, I'm a bad human being. The title of the book, therefore, has been blind spot, you know, hidden biases yeah. of good people. And the good people is extremely important to me. I do believe that we have changed over the course of our evolutionary history into becoming better and better people who have higher and higher standards for how we treat others. And so we are good. And um, we must recognize that. And yet, ask people the question, are you the good person you yourself want to be? Hmm. And the answer to that is, no, you're not. And that's just a fact. And we need to deal with that if we want to be on the path of self-improvement. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with social psychologist Mazarin Benaji. There's a little test, a grid, uh, really, I think, in the preface to your book, Blind Spot, where you actually are able, as the reader, in you know less than a minute, to have this experience of seeing something on a page. Uh, moving the picture so that part of the picture disappears and experiencing that your brain fills in the blank with what it expected to see there. Mm. doesn't show yeah. you that you have a blind spot. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're seeing something and you think you know something. And this as an analogy for the fact that we, we also go through life with partial knowledge, which we fill in that this, this applies to social groups as well and that our brain is giving us information that may or may not be the whole picture. <laughs> I don't know. Is that too simplified? No, it's not too simplified. It is actually fundamental. It is a hallmark of human intelligence mm. that to survive, to evolve, to be able to do ordinary things, we have to fill in. We must fill in. We have theories about how the world works. I know that when I'm speaking to you in this little studio room, that certain things are going to happen. I'll listen to questions. I'll answer them. But I'm not going to listen all of a sudden to rock music being played. Certain things are simply not going to happen. People aren't going to walk into the room because right. they know. These are reasonable assumptions. We, we create order and we need order yeah. to function. And they work. Mm -hmm. They work in many, many cases. But our worlds socially, intellectually, in the jobs that we have to do, 
they're no longer predictable in that way. Yeah. I can sit trying to admit a candidate to graduate school. Somebody, a manager, can be trying to think about who to hire. The very theories that I used to have that said, when people look different from me, don't hire them. That's not going to work out. They don't have your values. They don't understand what you're saying. Keep them out of your inner circle. That was a very reasonable philosophy a few dozen years ago, a few hundred years ago, for sure. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted by people who look and speak entirely different from me, and they are the ones I should outsource to. They're the ones who will solve the problem of my science by inventing a new piece of equipment that will show me something about the brain that I could never have done. How am I to cope with this? You know, this is an old machine in my head telling me what to do based on theories that it has learned that seemed reasonable and rational. And all of a sudden, I have this enormous task before me of putting all that aside and asking newly, is this really in my interest? Hmm. So I've just come from teaching uh, a class to a group of students at Harvard Business School um, on a problem that they read. It's an Airbnb problem. People who run Airbnb places, these are homes that people own into which they can allow people to come and stay for a smaller amount of money than those people would pay if they stayed in a hotel. It turns out that there is a race bias here. Um, if you are black, you are on the order of about 15% less likely to get a house. Because the host has a, an option the host to accept your reservation, right? Exactly. And so how do then, the hosts, do they infer that by name or pictures? They do. Or? Yeah, mm -hmm. it can be name or pictures, mm -hmm. and names are very interesting. Names give a lot of information. I gave them the example that if somebody saw my name, an H next to a Z, that's um, <laughs> a signal of a person who you shouldn't want in your home. Mm. Except that my email address also continues on and says at harvard.edu. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm a wonderful guest. Right. I'm a safe guest. I will pay. I won't break their furniture. And so all of this goes into computing how you make your choices. And here is my interest. At this moment, let's say that we set aside the problem of those who are consciously prejudiced and who say, I do not wish to have black people live in my house. Let's put them aside because for now I find them much less interesting and uh, I have very little to say to them. But let me take the example of somebody who might be like myself, who has no such conscious belief, who actually wishes to be a person who wants a diverse group of people who come and live in her apartment. I believe that large number of those people who are turning African Americans down are such people. I think large numbers of us want to make money and we want to be fair. And if we're not being fair and if we're not making money, I think... Um, some scientific evidence can play a role in making us aware. Is, is our need to create order out of the chaos that is reality um, behind? Uh, so, so I'm always struck, and I mean, this is an, another kind of a reflection of this, of how each of us knows, if we're asked to think about it for two seconds, that within our group, whether it's our family or the people we work with or, you know, whatever our clubs are, whatever our avocations are, we know that within that group itself, even if it's a small group, there's huge diversity. 
and there are people who we are more like and people who are very different from and perhaps people who drive us completely crazy, you know, especially in our families. And yet we are, they are kin. But we assume a kind of monolithic quality to others. <laughs> um, hmm. Is that something our so brains the, do also? Yeah. So in the book, we report on a little riddle, which many people now have heard. Uh, it was originally a riddle printed in Reader's Digest, I believe, but it also appeared on All in the Family. Mm. <laughs> and it, So anybody who watched TV in the 70s kind of knows this riddle. And the riddle goes like this. A father and his son were in a car accident. The father dies at the scene. The boy, badly injured, is rushed to a local hospital. In the hospital, the operating surgeon looks at the boy and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How can this be if the father just died? And when I was asked this riddle in 1985, my answer was, oh, the father who died at the scene was the adoptive father, and then the father who was the surgeon was the biological father. Now, you know, this answer is so convoluted compared to what is the actually correct answer that it boggles my mind that I did not get the right answer. So I put this riddle up on a website recently, asked lots of people. 80% today of people who read this Didn't riddle get do it? not know the right answer. 80%. I mean, I've heard this before, heard. so I know what of the right course, answer is. so you know. The right answer, of course, is, it's why the don't mother. you say the surgeon is the boy's mother. <laughs> yeah. Duh. How could this be that I didn't get right. this answer? And I will tell you, I, have, I, I say this in my lectures to people, and I saw a woman recently who, when she heard the right answer, she hit her head on the table <laughs> in front of her. And later when she came up to speak to me with a big bruise on her forehead, <laughs> uh, I, I said to her, I, 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 see, I, I see that you didn't get the answer and I saw what you did, but, you know, it's not – I understand the frustration, but you shouldn't have hit yourself so hard. And she mm. said, of course I should have. My mother is a surgeon. Mm. Now think about this, yeah. right? Yeah. So <laughs> th 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 right. there's something odd about the mind. Yeah. Okay, look, if if a hundred percent of surgeons were men, this would not be a bias. This would be a fact. And I've talked to doctors who work in hospitals where eighty percent of the entering class of surgeons are women, and they don't get the right answer. That's what you mean by monolith. What what is it about our minds that? Uh, doesn't allow us to get to an obvious right answer because there's almost like a firewall in our minds that the stereotype really is. It won't let us traverse into the domain of the right answer because there's a wall, and that wall is just sort of keeping us from getting there. Look, these simple ways of thinking paid off in the old world. You thought that way, there was no big ethical issue or an issue of not finding the right candidate or hiring the right candidate for the job. Your main issue was, do I survive to the next day? I don't think the world is that way anymore, and yet we must deal with the vestiges of, of these old ways of thinking. You know, I, I, I'd love to just, you know, for a few minutes kind of talk to you about some of the things that are happening in culture now. And one would be the ferment... Uh, what's the word I want to use? In some places, kind of um, uproar that's happening on college campuses around the country. Um, mm -hmm. What are you seeing? What intrigues you? What are the questions you're asking? What do we, you wish we were paying attention to? When I see this 
particular debate that that you mentioned, and it's happening everywhere on my campus included. Yeah, I'm very excited by it because it's making all of us deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Yes, and I think this is terrific. We are being forced to answer the question of our generation. I come believing that people should be admitted to Harvard University based on their accomplishments. When we begin to do that, we find that there is a diversity of people who get in because there are many different forms of accomplishment. And ever since Harvard stopped using financial resources as a way of admitting, we now have a large number of students, close to half, who are on deep financial aid. And that changes literally the complexion of college students with every underrepresented minority sitting in Harvard College in their numbers in the population and some ethnic minorities sitting in numbers much larger than their numbers in the population, Asians, Jews, for example. So we would sit around saying, okay, we're done. We've done, we've done our job. Harvard mimics the country. Imagine that. And a bunch of Harvard students say, I don't feel comfortable here. I don't feel at home. And then we have the events that have occurred on many college campuses where freedom of expression is being pitted against a need for safety. Yes. I come from a tradition, a Western tradition, I will add, where the desire to be and make students in your class uncomfortable is your mission. It is my job to tell people to feel uncomfortable, to squirm, to go back and think hard about where they come from and so on. And now I'm being told that when I say that, I'm making somebody possibly uncomfortable. And I have argued forever, this is a safe room in which any we can say anything and we will deal with it because if we don't, we've basically given up the most fundamental aspect of who we are and what we prize and value and what I believe is at the heart of social change. So even today in class when some wonderful student said, well, why should it be Airbnb's job to change society? If people don't want to have people who are black in their homes, that's their God-given right. right. And I... In a few minutes later, I said, Andy, or whatever his name was, um, you're right. That is that is currently a right. I can look at, and Andy was kind of uh, beefy and bald, and I said, I can look at your face and say, I don't like your face. And I certainly do not like men without hair on their heads, so I don't want to hire you. And you should have seen the change. So mm. people are very mm. open to the idea of speaking freely until, <laughs> until it's about the them. freedom is about them. Yeah. And I, I, I could see, you know, he actually slid down in his chair and became small. And I said, sit up. You're not a short, bald man. You're just bald. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wanted... I wanted him to realize that if he's going to dish it out, it's going to be dished back. And I could see African-Americans and women in the room just look at me with their jaws dropping like, you actually just said that Mm. to him. Mm. And I am so given that I am for this kind of speech, it does bother me when people say, I feel unsafe. 
And then I realized that no value is absolute. I can have a deep, deep, deep value on freedom of expression, but the world didn't start yesterday right. with everybody equal. Right. It started a long time ago. Right. And largely, I would say, advantaged African-Americans who come to Harvard are people who have themselves lived in a fairly, I would say, safe place. But their world is different today than it would have been even 10 years ago. Yeah. A black student at Harvard now must confront the fact that every week somebody who looks like them is being shot in some part of the country. I don't understand how that doesn't create PTSD. I don't understand how it doesn't have any impact. And therefore, as a professor, I need to now ask myself, what does that mean? How am I to make people for whom the world is unsafe feel safe and equally safe? Mm -hmm. So this is complex. Yeah. There's nothing about this issue that is simple, but I have every faith that we will come out of it if we don't hold back, if we keep talking, and if we try to understand what the other is saying. After a short break, more conversation with Mazarin Banaji. Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts to listen again and discover produced and unedited versions of everything we do. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the social psychologist Mazarin Benaji. She's a pioneer of the science of implicit bias, which is helping us become aware of the unintentional blind spots we bring to our encounters with difference. She's helping take our grappling with this out of the realm of guilt and into transformative good. We're in such an interesting, intense moment. I mean, just to, to speak to the what you called the personal, but the personal in the context of of geopolitical realities, of living in a globalized world, of living with this pace of technology. Um, as you say, we are in a very different situation from our ancestors who who should have been threatened by anybody who was different and unknown. And And now the challenge for us is to collaborate and to understand our well-being linked to that of people around the globe in very, very concrete ways. And yet it does feel like fear is on the rise. So how does, what does fear do to these dynamics that you study and how do we work with that? Fear is so easy to create, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and yet we know that fear is not equal. My colleague, uh, Liz Phelps, the neuroscientist, and I did a study many years ago where we actually created fear in people by associating a neutral face with a shock. <laughs> you would sit there and you would see face number one. Nothing would happen. 
you would see face number one again and nothing would happen. But face number two, whenever it appeared, would give you a slightly uncomfortable buzz on your finger. And very quickly, we learn to fear face two and not to fear face one. And so we gave to African Americans and to white Americans faces that were either white or black, and half the white faces produced fear and half the black faces produced fear, but not the others. But then we stop giving the aversive stimulus. Now you see the same face too, and before it used to give you a shock, and now it's not. And what's of interest to us as scientists is how fast do you lose fear? Right. How fast do you give up fearing the previously fearful person? Right. And what we discovered is that fear reduction is deeply based on who that other is. You reduce your fear towards previously fear-producing others if they're members of your group. For whites, you lose fear to white faster than to black. To black Americans, you lose fear to black more mm. quickly than you would to white. Mm. Somebody who wrote a commentary on a paper actually likened our result to the real-world question of terrorism and why right. it is that we might lose fear to homegrown terrorists far more quickly than we do to foreign-born terrorists, for example. <sighs> um, very interesting question because we do try foreign-born terrorists in this country as we do homegrown ones. And to know this result is important. And, you know, we have we have some reason to think that intergroup intimacy might reduce this bias. There's no excellent evidence, but people who say they've had romantic relations with members of the other group, whites who've, who've had uh, romantic relationships with African-Americans and African-Americans who've had romantic relationships with whites do tend to show lower bias of this kind. And so, you know, we don't have, I wouldn't call that strong evidence, but I would say there is some suggestion that breaking bread together, having intimacy of other kinds together continuously can because the brain is malleable. It's not rigid. It has a set of default responses, but they're extremely malleable to experience. And that's what the modern world gives us. Do not pretend, I say, if you live in L.A. or in New York, that just because you live in a diverse city that you are now protected. In fact, you may be worse off because you see things every day. Your brain has to notice them. There are statistics about yeah. crime and who has which kind of job. And as you walk down the street, you notice who's well-dressed and who's not. All of this is being learned. God knows if you're an equivalent person in Montana, you may be more protected. But if you live in a diverse city like New York or L.A., and you use the city's diversity to change your experiences, I would argue that that would change you in some way. That mitigates somehow these yeah. impulses. Yes. It seems like it's often true that the other who is where fear is played on an idea of the other. And I, I would say that that happens with Muslims now, and I would say that it happens with refugees and immigrants. Um, actually, 
it, it's kind of an abstraction. I mean, it's not necessarily uh, groups that people are interacting with, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not remembering the study exactly, but there is an Eastern European country in which a survey was done where they were given a nonsense name of a group and asked, how much do you hate them? How much would you like them not to come to our country? And they got large numbers of people saying, we don't want them here. We really dislike them. Uh, They're filthy and mean and nasty. And they didn't exist. That was a made-up name. Really? Yeah. So I, I, I think... I think that's what you're trying to get at. And now, of course, think about Muslims who actually do exist. Yeah. And there are things that a subset of Muslims are doing that create legitimate fear in some uh, people or in everybody, yeah. uh, myself included. But the worry is, what do we do about that when I find that there are Muslims who come up to me after a talk I give and they say, I know that I'm never going to be promoted because I know that when people look at me, that as they hear my name, that on my forehead gets written the word radical. I think a lot about how the virtue of tolerance is really kind of the core civic virtue that we enshrined in the 60s to say how we're going to navigate all this new difference. And that, in fact, it's not a very robust virtue because it, it actually kind of keeps us, you know, it's like you stay over there and do what you do and I'll be me. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, I don't know if you use the word language of virtues or what, what an equivalent language would be for you. You are a scientist, but, you know, the civil rights leaders um, mobilized around the notion of love. And I wonder if you have a vocabulary of qualities that you think could be effective for us to try to cultivate at that personal level, compassion or empathy, um, aspirations that might mm-hmm. be added to, not not to take away tolerance, but it's kind of complete tolerance in terms of what we know now. It's a good question. If you're right about the word tolerance, oh, it's a good word. <laughs> I, I like it. I... Um, I also see that it's it seems sounds a little naive these yeah. days when we speak about it. Yeah. And I I favor and as you said as a scientist what's the word? My favorite word is understanding. Hmm. Hmm. I know it's somewhat colder than the word compassion or empathy, but my regular lab seminar, which is an ongoing course, is called the Understand Seminar. Mm. And it has many different meanings, of course. We're there to understand, to understand the research and to make our own. But we study a set of topics that I believe that if when you understand, you're left with no option but to change in some way. And I like giving more complexity to the word understand whenever I have a chance. But I think um, you have to create environments where understanding is feels safe to people and is possible. Yeah. So one of the things that we haven't talked about is sort of what I think is at the core of the work my colleagues and I have done, and that is to have built a test, to have built a method to have created something on the web that you can go 
take. Mm -hmm. And it will give you an insight into your mind. What is the test? It's very simple. The assumption is that when two things come to be paired with each other in our experience over and over and over again, like the word bread and butter, that when you say bread, butter will come to mind. Likewise, I'm going to argue when you say leader, male is going to come to mind. When you say nurse, female is going to come to mind. And our test tries to get at the strength of those associations, even if you consciously don't want to. So when I take the test in which I am asked to associate male and career, female and home, I can do it very, very easily. But when the test requires the opposite association of male and home, female and career, I pretty much fall apart. I can't do it. And when I can't do it, I understand. I understand that I'm a product of a culture where the culture has now gotten into my head enough that I am the culture. I cannot say there is a culture out there. It's biased. Right. Not me. Consciously, <laughs> that's true. Right. But not at this other level. And I would argue that when you come face to face with that, and if you visit implicit.harvard.edu and take a test, it does produce a deep understanding, maybe not immediately, but after months of having taken the test. I've had people call me up and say, I took your stupid test six months ago and didn't think anything was useful, but <laughs> I just traveled to a new city where I now live and I have to pick a doctor and I selected a white doctor from the list of doctors before me at a new HMO and it turns out that the black doctor actually had expertise in my disease of diabetes, but I hadn't picked him. Hmm. And now I think that maybe I see what your stupid test was trying to tell me then and I didn't understand, and I am writing to thank you for it. Okay, mm -hmm. now this is a simple little uh, report, but just think about it. Somebody rejects an experience. Later, something happens that's completely unrelated to it, and the person because of conscious awareness and deep understanding of their minds. They come to an understanding that I did something because that was not in my own interest. And that test may be telling me something. Those sorts of things give me hope. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with social psychologist Mazarin Benaji. I mean, I'd love to have three more hours for you to give us what you know about where to take it from there. But I think I'll just ask the question this way. I mean, how do you construct your life, your environment? How do you move through the world differently, having taken this test yourself, having also mm -hmm. not liked the results? You know, because of this science that you do, what actions do you take that turns that understanding into uh, change? Okay, so this is me speaking as yeah. a person, yeah. not, not necessarily as a scientist. Um, I do two things. I no longer believe that I can just let 
information into my mind as it comes, I believe I must choose and edit. I can't go home and lie on my couch and turn on the TV and watch the thing that seems interesting because that is going to leave a mark on my mind. Mm. And I actually am pleased that that the way technology now allows me to craft what I want to watch and listen to um, allows me greater freedom to say, this is what I do not want to watch and this is what I do want to watch. When you, could you give three. an example of something you might have yeah. watched before but you wouldn't watch now? Is that well, too personal? So, yeah, <laughs> the easier thing to watch is what I don't want to watch. Yeah. And, and look, I have to say, I do like American football, but I don't watch it. Mm. Okay, that's an example. Mm -hmm. I, I have a hard time not watching it because I do love the sport. But it's a moral issue for me. If people are dying and becoming mentally ill from a sport, I think of it as my having participated in watching gladiators yeah. and i cannot do it it's just a, it's a, it's a personal choice i don't i don't expect that it will uh, translate to other people's choices but it's a personal one right. but the other thing that i do is to actually create inputs into my mind of my own making i i, I do think that that in some ways our brains are simple and that they will believe that things are real even if they're not so that's what movies do. That's what novels do for yeah. us. They, And so what if I have a series of a thousand pictures that rotate through on my screensaver of people who come from many parts of the world that I will never, ever see or even think about? Look, just take an example of close by. Um, I have no idea what life for a farmer in Iowa is. I bet it's hard. I bet I have no idea what they have to deal with. I don't think I will ever truly understand. But Right now, they're a distant group in my mind. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I don't think about farming and farmers. If my screensaver literally just points out the existence of such people and what they might, what their issues might be, I believe that my brain is going to begin to care at some level. Mm -hmm. And if I show myself possibilities that don't exist easily, that's even better. Um, mm. These are hopes. But I also, I don't just say it's a hope because I do know enough as a psychologist about learning and memory. And I know that we learn. Mm. How much of this I need to do in order to change, I cannot say. But I can say that there is a point at which this brain is not just elastic in moving to what is being suggested, but that it may be plastic yeah. in that it can be reset into a new mold. Hmm. That's wonderful. I, I just have one final question. Um, it's a huge question, but um, I just want you to just how you would start answering the question of, you know, how you would start talking about what you've learned about what it means to be human, perhaps in ways that would have surprised you in your Zoro Zoroastrian uh, childhood. <laughs> it's a... Um, it's a surprise to me that what I've come to study actually harkens back to some very deep beliefs in Zoroastrianism. Mm. So a very simple tenet, we were not raised deeply religious, but we knew some of what were the central tenets of our religion. And 
the most important one is that the world is made up of good and evil. And your job as a Zoroastrian is to ask every day, which side am I on? And every day when I do my little experiments and I have two categories, good and bad, black and white, <laughs> I think in a sense, the test that I use, the implicit association test, is a test that is telling me which side I'm on in a way I would never have known without the science. Hmm. And that just thrills me that Zoroaster may have been the first social psychologist. <laughs> I mean, he may, have, he may have figured out that the world is simply divided in people's minds even into good and evil, but he would have never imagined that in the 20th and 21st century, somebody would make a test mm. to actually get at those concepts in some measurable, objectively measurable way and tell people which side they were on so that they could adjust. Mazarin Benaji is the Richard Clark Cabot Professor of Social Ethics in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. She's the co-author of Blind Spot: Hidden Biases of Good People and a 2018 inductee into the National Academy of Sciences. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Profit Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Damon Lee, and Jeffrey Basoy. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.